ESPN Daily is presented by Supercuts, the smarter, easier way to get a haircut. It's not just any haircut. It's Supercuts. So, TJ Quinn, where did you want to start this story? You could start in a lot of places, but as good as any, I guess, is 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland. That's where FIFA is headquartered. TJ Quinn is an investigative reporter for ESPN. Everyone was waiting for the announcement of the world's biggest sporting event, the location of what would be the 2018 and 22 World Cups. And Russia, which has never been a great soccer power, all of a sudden is announced as the winner of the 2018 bid. The 2018 FIFA World Cup will be organized in Russia. Vladimir Putin, he gave a speech that was notable for the fact that it was given in English. He rarely speaks English. He is not uh, really a competent English speaker. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The 2018 World Cup in Russia will be up to the highest standards. New modern stadiums and facilities will be built to perfection. Together, let us make sure that football promotes fair play, tolerance, honor. This was a clear sign that this was not a speech for the Russian people or even for the international football world. This was for the larger geopolitical world. And when you hear that now, what do you think? The first thing you think of is the response from all these world leaders and these people who run FIFA and the IOC about how this is the beauty of sport. It transcends politics. It brings Russia into the fold as a good global citizen. This is why you hear people in the sport world frequently make pitches for the heads of the IOC and FIFA to be Nobel Prize laureates. It turned out to be a pretty different reality. The reality of these last several days has been surreal and horrifying, with basically every hour bringing more footage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and more questions about the autocrat responsible, Russian President Vladimir Putin. But as it turns out, there may be no better way into the mind of Putin than through his deep, deliberate impact on the world of sports. So today, TJ Quinn investigates how Vladimir Putin used games to gain power and how his Kremlin has used the World Cup and the Olympics and every sport in between to keep it. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Wednesday, March 2nd. This is ESPN Daily. So, TJ, ESPN Daily obviously is a sports podcast, but it is impossible to not pay attention to what is clearly the biggest story on our planet right now, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the man at the center of that story, the man everybody's trying to understand, is, of course, Russian President Vladimir Putin. 
Back in 2018, you worked on an investigation for E60 where you went to Russia, you looked deeply into Putin and his connections to sports and how he uses sports maybe more than any other world leader as a means for power. What made you want to look into Putin back then? This was coming off the revelations that Russia not only had a pretty extensive doping system through the Sochi Games, but that it was state-run. Drug cocktails and bogus urine samples. A doctor admits providing those and more to Russian athletes at the Sochi Olympics. Grigory Rodchenkov tells the New York Times it was all part of Russia's state-run doping program. You had a doping operation that was actually facilitated by the FSB, which was the national police. It's like the FBI running a doping scheme in this country. Mm. And it came straight from the office of the Minister of Sport. We don't have one in this country, but almost every other country does. This was Putin's right-hand man, Vitaly Mutko, overseeing this with the Russian anti-doping agency, with their top scientists carrying out this scheme with the help of federal police. And just started thinking about how this is not just about sports, this is about his international goals, his geopolitical goals. If you want to understand Russia and how it operates, look at how Vladimir Putin operates in the world of international sport. And I want to do that with you, TJ. I want to unpack all of that throughout this episode in its various facets, but Let's just start here with how Putin uses sports in specific to bolster that personal image. Because what I think most Americans are familiar with is the caricature of Putin as sportsman. These images of him lifting weights and riding horseback without a shirt on. What's the purpose of all of those images? It's all part of a package. You got a couple things going on. One is just what's going on culturally in Russia. And this is not me speaking. This is the many experts on Russia that we spoke to for that piece, the number of books that we read about it. There is a strong culture of masculinity and coming off the weakness, you know, physical weakness of Boris Yeltsin. That was the first thing that a young Vladimir Putin wanted to project was this virility. And you know, some of the key speeches he's giving, there, there's one we use in the piece in, in St. Petersburg where they're firing off these cannons He's right in front of the statue of Peter the Great. I mean, this is a direct connection to the history of Russia as an empire. That's what he's tapping into. It doesn't sound subtle, in other words. Subtlety is not his thing. That's how he is with those messages. And maybe the most unsubtle of all of those displays is that seemingly annual hockey event, TJ, that... Vladimir Putin participates in every year. It's the exhibition where he plays alongside NHL legends like Pavel Bure and Slava Fetisov. And hey, what do you know? Vladimir Putin always winds up being the high scorer. I thought it was kind of a joke. We went to visit the sports editor at the Novaya Gazeta in Moscow, which is really the last independent newspaper in the country. And first of all, I've been in an awful lot of news newsrooms in this country. Yes. And I've never seen one like this. When you walk in in the trophy case, they also have riot helmets and Kevlar vests that they have to wear. And behind me on the wall were photos of the six journalists from that paper 
who've been assassinated since Putin took power. This is what they're living with every day. Mm. Besides that, it's 1970s wood paneling and everybody smokes and it's a throwback. So that sports editor, Vladimir Mozgovoy, said to us, Think, for example, if President Obama played in a basketball match and he scored more than Magic Johnson, all of America would laugh at this. But in Russia, nobody actually laughed at Putin. Everybody accepted the fact that he excels in hockey and had so many goals. We had to watch the video again to see, no, he's dead serious. It was not a joke. Everyone is supposed to pretend the emperor is wearing hockey clothes. Putin had only been playing hockey for a few years. That was not his sport. <laughs> he was big into you know, judo and, and sambo, which is a you know, Russian version of martial art. And all of a sudden, here he is with Fetisov and all these legends, and he scores eight goals. And he's always by himself in front of the net. Nobody's in front of him, and the goalies are flopping around like dead fish. <laughs> and no one can stop him. It would look like a parody, except that it was meant to be taken seriously. Look how great this man is. And nobody winked. You know, no, no little grins or nudges. People watching were supposed to think, yes, this is how good Vladimir Putin is at hockey. And so obviously, TJ, from the outside, this sort of like humorless, epic delusion. I mean, we laugh at this instinctively, but given that they are so clearly important to not just the Russian people, but Putin himself in particular, why is this a thing he cares about so much? When and why did Putin himself begin to see sports as central to his conception of himself? Any biography that you read about him talks about the great pride he had in this rough childhood he had growing up. He was a scrapper, street fighter. We shot images of the uh, apartment building where he grew up in St. Petersburg. He is one generation removed from maybe the most brutal chapter in Russian history, which was the siege of Leningrad. Once St. Petersburg, Leningrad under communist Soviet rule, and then back to St. Petersburg again. I was born in Leningrad. And as you know, during World War II, Leningrad went through 900 days of blockade. Leningrad was bombed every day. This was where a million people died during the Nazi siege, where people were cannibalizing bodies that were dead in the street, where everybody lost family members. And he was born in this rough part of town. He lives in this apartment building where, by his description and by others, there were this courtyard with drunks and thugs and He's always getting into fights. And he gets into judo and gets good at it. And that became absolutely essential to his personal identity. Now, all this is happening, you know, as he comes of age and then goes to work for the KGB during the Cold War. 
So now you've got this idea. He is a street scrapper who is now working for the most notorious spy agency in the world. Putin, as, as we know, he joins the KGB, the Russian spy agency, and he gets staffed in Dresden in East Germany during the 70s and 80s. This is the height of the Cold War. Just remind us what the role of sports was during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Sports were the battlefield. That is where the Cold War was really fought, where there was any actual engagement between the two sides. What it meant every time these teams faced was which system was superior, capitalism or communism, democracy or authoritarianism. And 1972, when the Soviets beat the Americans in basketball, was one of the greatest moments in the history of Soviet Russia. Now the clock shows three seconds. There is time for the Russians to go to their big man, Alexander Belov. They're going to try. Alexander Belov between two American defenders. And this time it is over. Other than, you know, conquering all the nations that they invaded, this was the biggest political victory. And same thing in 1980, for those of us who are old enough to remember, it's funny to think of the, the American superpower as this plucky little kid on the world stage, but <laughs> in the hockey world, that's what we were. They were pros, we were amateurs. And then all of a sudden, how many people, even if they weren't alive then, can still do Al Michaels' Do You Believe in Miracles? It felt like a miracle. That was a political victory for this country. And so these were the formative years for Vladimir Putin, TJ, is what you're saying. And, and it takes us to 1991 because this is the collapse now of the Soviet Union and with it a lot of Russia's sporting empire. Vladimir Putin is returning home from East Germany. He's working his way back up through the political ranks in Russia. He eventually becomes prime minister under the then ailing president, Boris Yeltsin. And when Yeltsin resigns on the last day of the 20th century, December 31st, 1999, Putin takes over. And how does he begin to use sports once he's in office? Well, he recognized a couple of things. One was that having events like the Olympics, like the World Cup, that means you're a world power. That means that you are right up there with everyone else. And I'm choosing this word specifically. When the Soviet Union collapsed, and then as Yeltsin's presidency collapsed in the late 1990s, it was emasculating for a lot of people in Russia. They had convinced themselves that they were this major world power in the Soviet Union, and now they were a joke. The president of the country is this man who's lampooned as a drunk who almost collapses during public events. And Putin recognizes that sports are one of the vehicles that can get them back into maybe not actual world power, but at least the appearance of it. And when you run a country like that, appearance counts for an awful lot. I don't know if there's a moment that did more to create that appearance than the one that we got in 2007, TJ, when Russia was selected to host the 2014 Winter Olympics. The 22nd Olympic Winter Games in 2014 are awarded to the city of Sochi. Putin himself was 
everywhere at the Sochi Games. I mean, he was arguably the whole thing's biggest star. Well, they're called the Olympic Games, but they may as well call them the Putin Games. Never before have a game been this closely identified with one personality. And one of the people you talked to for this story, TJ, before he passed away, was Senator John McCain. What did he have to say about Putin and staging those Olympics in Sochi? That was really something. That was a month before McCain was diagnosed with the cancer that eventually killed him. We were lucky to get that time. And he immediately drew a contrast with Adolf Hitler in the 1936 Olympics. Having the Olympics and being clearly responsible for it was another step in that deification of Vladimir Putin with the Russian people. Dominating the world's sports uh, was not only his ambition, but by the way, it was another guy's too. And his name was Adolf Hitler. You know, we also interviewed for this piece, Garry Kasparov, one of the, if not the greatest chess player in history, one of the two greatest, um, and a former hero of the Soviet empire. And both of them said that, you know, the, the apt comparison is those 36 Olympics. And both of them pointed out, look, we're, we're looking, you know, from the 21st century as Hitler in full of the, of the man who murdered 6 million Jews, you know, tried to take over Europe. But in 1936, he had only been in office a few years and was trying to show the world that, you know, Nazi Germany was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, this was a propaganda event. And that's what Kasparov told us when we pressed him about it. We're not talking about Hitler from the history book. We're talking from Hitler of 1936, where Hitler could enjoy tremendous popularity around the world because he was at the limelight, in the center of world attention. That's where you can make the case it's a valid comparison. A rising authoritarian figure with bigger ambitions than just his own country, frankly, that holds with Putin. Yeah, TJ, look, anytime there's a Hitler reference, right, this is the Godwin's Law thing. It it sort of is like, wait a minute, are we sure we want to talk about it in this way? But there do seem to be parallels here that you have come to report out and understand. There is great validity in this because what you're talking about is an authoritarian figure with two audiences. One is domestic, showing, look what I can do for us on the world stage. Look at the glory that I'm bringing us. The world is coming here. I'm the leader who did this for us. And at the same time, it's a message to the rest of the world that we are a country to be taken seriously. That is very much what the 36 Olympics were for Hitler and very much what Putin wanted in 2014 in Sochi. The fact is the playbook for authoritarians is pretty thin. And this is one of the plays that's in it. Putin may not have the same goals as Hitler, but he does share the similarity that his goals do not end at what the rest of the world considers to be Russian borders. All right, TJ, after the break, I want to talk further about how this playbook, how the business of sports gets used to advance Vladimir Putin's political power. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, 
LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, TJ, I want to understand better here how Putin uses sports, not just to serve and enhance his own self-image, but also as like this instrument of of real power like what benefits accrue to a guy like putin when someone who is already very powerful also is staging these giant sporting events when you get an olympic bid when you get the world cup you build stadiums you build infrastructure for those stadiums you build roads between them and what that means is opportunities for putin to skim money that goes to the oligarchs these are the, the richest men in Russia, and they are men. And they get to run the largest industries, uh, oil, transportation, media. They do so at the pleasure of President Vladimir Putin. It's this symbiotic relationship. He gives them power, he funnels money to them, and they keep him in charge. And so if that's the shadowy ecosystem where all of this takes place, what about the theft itself? How documented, how obvious is all of that stealing? Pretty obvious and pretty well documented. I mean, we met when we went to Russia uh, in St. Petersburg with a member of the legislature named Boris Vishnevsky. He is I mean, a fascinating figure to me. He is a guy who is part of the political opposition. And you would wonder, well, when we hear about figures like uh, Navalny who were jailed. Um, why is someone like Vishnevsky able to, to exist if he's opposition? Well, mm. he's not a threat to Vladimir Putin in any sense of the word. So there is a tradition of people who protest with permission. There are people who, you know, they are allowed to be voices against the Kremlin uh, because it allows the Kremlin to say, see, we tolerate political, uh, you know, disputes here. Um, what are you talking about? Right. So Vishnevsky, in Putin's mind, is this relatively unthreatening opponent who, because of that, is therefore allowed to exist. In some ways. I mean, Vishnevsky is like, he's the real deal. He, if he had his way, he would gladly, you know, overthrow Putin politically. Um, but he has he has no power anyway. He tried to head up an investigation into what happened with uh, the stadium built for the 2018 World Cup. That stadium opened eight years late. It was 500% over budget. Uh, I mean, we're dealing in multiples here. And found records that showed that, you know, a good 320 million, the equivalent of 320 million US, had been stolen. And nobody did anything. Nobody cared. He brought it to prosecutors and no one was punished. You know, it's it's one thing to have, you know, rumors, but Vishnevsky, he had the receipts. He had documents to show how much was stolen. So I asked him, what does that suggest to you? And he said, in my view, 
that the punishment would have hit people that were too high up. Now, look, we experienced a little bit of that too. You know, we reached out for our reporting to former intelligence, I mean, I gotta be very careful about how I describe it, former intelligence community members who were trying to connect us to people in Russia who would have been great sources. And independently, none of these sources knew who the others were. They came back to our source and said, we are not touching this topic. Mm. Because when you look at this, you're talking about money that goes into Putin's pockets and into the oligarchs' pockets, and that is too dangerous. And so they refused to, to cooperate with it. The, this, this is where, this is Putin's bread and butter. And so what you're saying here, TJ, really, is that this is Vladimir Putin's real base of power here. These massive sporting events are basically these unbelievable piggy banks where he can take care of his friends, these oligarchs. Well, I mean, that is it. I mean, look, he, he has plenty of other ways to steal as well, but nothing is quite as efficient or lucrative as these games, these huge, huge projects. Take Sochi. I mean, Sochi is the perfect microcosm for where the political and the personal and the sports world collide. You had a $7 billion bid for those games. And now everybody knows that the bid is one thing. The final cost always ends up being more. Right. But these ended up going up to $51 billion. And anybody who looked at it you know, could see that it was money was basically stolen. This money was... Um, it's just this amazing kickback scheme. This is why people talk about Putin's Russia being a mafia state. This is what they're referring to. This is the Sopranos, you know, getting a contract and then taking this public money and funneling it to these illegal sources. So in comes this figure, Boris Nemtsov. This is a country of corruption. <laughs> this is a problem for the United States, for Canada, for the United Kingdom, etc. For Putin, Russia, this is a system. This is not a problem. Hugely popular, brilliant man who was Putin's chief rival. Now, unlike Boris Vishnevsky, Nemtsov was an actual threat to Putin. And that was shown, you know, no better example than the investigation he and one of his protégés did into the corruption going into the Sochi Olympics. This slide is about corruption and uh, about how much money uh, his friends stolen during the preparation. If you look at Putin, he promised to spend 12. Final result is more than 50. That's why more than four times more. This is extra cost. And we uh, explain that because of corruption. I still have the report on my desk. Um, <laughs> it's in Russian, so it's not a huge help, but... But TJ, what does this report conclude as you had come to understand it post-translation? That they stole everything. I mean, that was really... You, could, you didn't need a whole pamphlet to do it. Um, but there was, there was really kind of a muted response within Russia, as other people explained to us. There was this thought in Russia that they're going to steal no matter what. So if they're going to steal, let's at least get something out of it. And what they got out of it were these gleaming modern stadiums and these international events. And that, you know, people in Russia might think that Putin's a crook and that, you know, his friends stole billions from them to do this. But at least there was something to show for it. So there was a kind of public tolerance uh, that Nemtsov and, and his team were, were pretty disappointed by it. They were, they were hoping there would be much more of a public backlash, but it, there wasn't much. 
And what happened, TJ, ultimately to Boris Nemtsov, the guy whose pamphlet you are currently holding in your hands? Well, before you, you, you tidy up his story, you've got to look at what happened right after those 2014 games. There were a number of people warning at the time that after that, you know, this great international spotlight, Putin was likely to do something reckless. And what happened right after the games, he goes into Crimea, into this mm. peninsula in Ukraine that, you know, Russia has long considered part of its domain. There was outrage around the world, but not much backlash. There were some sanctions. Nemtsov knew, like anybody who knew Putin knew, that his next goal was Ukraine. And he started an investigation into what Russians were doing in Ukraine. And I remember, I mean, there were people I met back then who were saying Ukraine should be really worried after 2018 when you have the World Cup, because he'll probably use another major event as a cover before he rolls in. Before that happens, Nemtsov came to the U.S. to meet with a number of leaders. One of them was John McCain. And already there was this growing sense that the work he had been doing, exposing the corruption leading into Sochi, and now looking into what Putin was doing in Ukraine, was very dangerous for him. And we asked John McCain about that. Boris Nensov sat in this office, and I said to him, please don't go back to Russia because I think they're going to kill you. He said, I have to go back because I love my country. Well, seven years ago this past Sunday, February 27th, he is crossing the Mos Moskoretsky Bridge right by the Kremlin. I've been on that bridge. There are 18 security cameras that cover that area. And for some reason, the night of February 27th, they were all off. And a car pulled up and he was shot dead right in view of the Kremlin and St. Basil's Cathedral. Moscow is in shock today. One of Vladimir Putin's fiercest critics gunned down in broad daylight, four bullets in the back in the very shadow of the Kremlin. It was a clear statement. No one has ever directly tied Putin to it. And when I spoke to Mike Morell, former acting head of the CIA, he said, yeah, you'll never find that kind of direct connection. You know, what you have more is this understanding in Russia that these are Putin's goals. If you want to be his guy, you better go out and find a way to do what he wants. He wanted Nemtsov gone. This is what happened. And did anyone ever get arrested for the murder of Boris Nemtsov? Well, they did arrest five ethnic Chechens, Chechnya Republic, closely allied with the Kremlin. There was a, a lot of blowback in Russia saying maybe they actually carried out the actual murder, but these are patsies for, you know, what they believe to be a, a Kremlin operation. But regardless, they were, there was a big show trial and these guys were trotted out and convicted. So TJ, you mentioned Ukraine. I want to get into how the sports world is reacting to Russia's invasion and the consequences that it could have or not have for Vladimir Putin after the break. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, 
perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to, say, 100 bucks and below. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, and more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TVs. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. So we have seen TJ Russia get punished in the past for violations throughout sports like the Olympics, of course, the foremost example where they have not competed under the Russian flag, but have been competing as the quote unquote Russian Olympic Committee. That was done in response to that massive state run doping scandal you referenced before that they conducted at the Olympics in Sochi. How would you describe those sanctions in particular? I'll, I'll use adjectives used by other people in the sports world that they were a joke. After you know the, the extent of that doping scheme came out, the World Anti-Doping Agency laid out a roadmap that Russia needed to follow to get back into good graces. And they had to give a full accounting of what went on and admit that this was a federally run doping scheme. They've never done that. The International Paralympic Committee said, we're going to ban Russia uh, from the Olympic Games in 2016 in Rio. But the IOC immediately countered that and said, no, we don't want to punish the athletes. Um, it's unfair to them. And IOC President Thomas Bach basically bent over backwards to do everything he could to get Russia back in. He came up with this plan where they weren't under the Russian flag, uh, weren't wearing Russian uniforms, but they were called Olympic athletes from Russia. And they were wearing Russian colors <laughs> and their fans all wave Russian flags. And that bending over backwards, TJ, why is it that international organizations like the IOC and sports have been so reluctant to actually punish Russia? Well, you got a few reasons. One is Russia, you know, spent a lot of money and got these games. And you have seen a move where these organizations go toward authoritarian regimes like China and Russia because they know things will get done. It's a lot easier to get a stadium built without any public opposition. You know, that's why you, you don't see as many Western or, or democratic nations making bids like they used to. But you also, there are a couple major prices to pay. 
What WADA found out quickly was that... This is the World Anti-Doping Agency, the organization that investigated Russia's doping program in Sochi. Uh, yes, and Putin's government would use the same weapons against them that they used to try to destabilize American elections. Fancy Bear, which is a hacking group connected to the GRU, which is, you know, Russia's equivalent of, of the CIA. They hacked WADA's databases and exposed what they intended to be embarrassing information about Western athletes. The, the effort was, you know, one, to embarrass them and to try to create this, you know, this constant both sides argument that how can you accuse Russia of corruption when there's corruption everywhere? Um, the both sideism has always been part of that playbook. Mm. But on the other hand, it's also a message to people involved that if you start looking into our business, if you're criticizing Russia, you are going to face some blowback. That's always been a reality. When Russia had a problem with its, with its anti-doping agencies, the guy who ran the scheme, Grigory Rodchenkov, his two predecessors in that same job died under very mysterious circumstances right before him. I mean, this, this, you're not just looking at public disgrace. People die. And when investigators start to look into it, they know that sometimes Russia plays for keeps. But then there's also the money and influence that Russia puts into this. When Johnny Infantino was elected as the head of FIFA, there was an internal investigation that showed uh, he got significant financial support from Russian oligarchs, mostly in the form of flights for his campaign. And there was an ongoing investigation that sources told us suggested there was much more money and they were never able to complete that investigation because Infantino fired two members of the ethics committee who were looking into it. So what influence does Russia have directly over him? We don't know. We just know that they supported his campaign with a lot of money, uh, and they also pour a lot of money in these smaller countries that get to vote for who the heads of these organizations are. They have a lot of leverage. And so with that as the backdrop, TJ, we are here now in March 2022. And what has the reaction been like in international sports over these past couple of days as you've seen it? It was a fairly stunning flip. I mean, you could see in the first few days of the war, FIFA and the IOC trying to find some kind of ground where it could look like they were doing something, uh, but not so much as to completely remove Russia from what they were doing. Uh, and then I think what really forced the hand was you had Poland, the Czech Republic, Sweden, those nations saying our soccer teams will not play Russia. And that put FIFA in this, in this corner that Infantino couldn't get out of. I mean, it, what's he going to do? Let them, you know, Russia win by forfeit? Uh, or is he going to finally take action? Mm. And people, I spoke to a couple of people in the sports world. To them, this was a game changer. Uh, the fact that finally FIFA was ready to do something to hold accountability. And the IOC... What, there's always, always a catch. You, I, you, you don't have to read any legal document as carefully as you have to an IOC statement. <laughs> and what they came out and said was that the executive board encourages the federations to ban Russian athletes uh, from what they're doing. So they're, they're kind of punting and saying, we'll let the individual federations handle it. So it sounds like a strong statement. It's not quite the organization Global Athlete uh, came out and pounded them. 
And now we see a little more hedging. Uh, FIFA and the IOC have said that they are not going to remove Russian officials who are in administrative positions. Uh, so again, it's like they're, they're taking steps. They're, they're, it's not a full-on commitment to isolate Russia. And so as we see these governing bodies dissociate themselves to varying degrees from Vladimir Putin. And we've seen just recently the International Judo Federation, his favorite sport, strip him of his honorary presidency. We've seen the Taekwondo governing body do something similar, taking away his trophies. How much do you think this weighs personally on Vladimir Putin, given what you understand about his love of sports? It's, it is really complicated. I, I think these sort of things do bother him. And it doesn't help in the political calculations when you realize it's one more area where you're being seriously isolated. Um, I mean, all the work that Russia has put into supporting these federations and getting its people assigned to high positions and bringing events, you know, those are important. What's more important is the money. I mean, that really is what keeps this going. You know, as we said before, it. His government's been described uh, as a, a mafia state, and you've got to keep the money coming in. When you are banned from these events, that's an opportunity that you're missing now. So is there a personal side to it? You know, it probably bothers him. Um, but on the other hand, he is someone who has always thrived on this sense of isolation, that the Russians are victims um, on the world stage. Uh, And this certainly plays into that. And in terms of very conspicuous blowback, TJ, it does seem very notable that we're getting Russian athletes now speaking up about this, too. You know, the tennis player, Andrei Rublev, you know, made international headlines when he wrote No War, Please on a camera lens in Dubai. And look, that is gutsy. You know, his, his, his family is there. I mean, there, there is a real potential threat for an athlete who does that. Alexander Ovechkin, whose avatar on social media is imposing with Vladimir Putin, has not criticized the man, but he has said publicly he would like this war to end. Please, no more war. You know, um, it doesn't matter uh, who is in the war, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and different countries. I have lots of friends in Russia and uh, Ukraine, and it's hard to see uh, the war. Like, I hope uh, soon it's going to be over and um, it's going to be... Uh, peace in the whole world. Listen to how to what he actually said, though. I mean, you, there have been a lot of people saying, wow, he speaks out against the Russian invasion. No, he made a fairly anodyne statement about how he doesn't like war. You know, and he said it doesn't matter who is in the war. Mm. It's a Mona Lisa statement that, you know, is going to be seen <laughs> the way you want to see it. If you're a Putin supporter, then you can easily say, yes, Ovechkin's still a loyal Russian, and he laments... NATO and Ukrainian hostility the way we all do. It's awful. They put us in that position. And frankly, Johnny Infantino, in, in, when he was asked directly about his relationship with Putin, gave a similar kind of statement. I'm just thinking of the poor people there now. That's what matters. No one's going to dispute that. But it is a far cry from saying this is a criticism of Putin or what he did. Yes. And for the record, Ovechkin was asked in that press conference, do you still support President Vladimir Putin? And he said, Quote, well, he is my president. What other option does he have? I mean, his family is still there for all these guys. You know, even the ones who are, you know, kind of milquetoast with their answers, their families are there. And they could, if you are prominent, then you are a, a, 
a primary target for some kind of harassment. And as for the people, the athletes who are in Ukraine itself, that's been the other part of the story that has been so clearly overlapping with the world of sports in ways that have been staggering to those who are not familiar with how much athletics runs through that government. Yeah, I, I, these are everyone talks about how you know President Zelensky is a former comedian. Um, you know what? What's you know also notable is you know two of the biggest heroes of Ukraine are Vasily and Vladimir Klitschko, former heavyweight champion boxers. Vasily is the mayor of Kiev and yes. has been a prominent figure you know, there for a long time. They became political heroes because they were sports heroes. And you've got Vladimir, his brother, goes ahead and, and, and enlists in the Army Reserve. Um, Vasily was also, these, these guys have been photographed in, in combat fatigues out there on the streets You've got one of the greatest fighters in the world right now, a national hero, Vasily Lomachenko. He says he's going to join the, the Ukrainian army. Those figures are national heroes because of what they have done in sports, because they are fighters. And, and the symbolism of what they're doing uh, is a big part of why you're seeing the sort of spirit from the Ukrainian population that you are. So when you step back now, TJ, and you look at the full story here that you've reported, the life story of Vladimir Putin to all of these massive global events, to the athletes who are clearly on the ground, a part of the biggest news story on earth, what comes to mind? That sports are not incidental to this fight. They are another front in this fight. I mean, this is a war being fought in the streets with guns, but it's also a cyber battle. It is also a battle of information and misinformation. And propaganda plays a part, you know, like really no other war in recent memory. And sports are part of that. Sports are politics. Sports are essential to Russian culture and identity and to Vladimir Putin's identity. And so when the world steps, you know, steps up and says, we are going to eliminate Russia from the global sports community, that's, that's not just propaganda. That, that is not just a cosmetic step. That is something that absolutely hits at the core of who Russia is, of who Vladimir Putin is, and how he maintains his support. TJ Quinn, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks, man. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.